and welcome to today's episode of the Pediatric Consult. I'm Dr. Jill Schaffog, your host for today. I'm a pediatrician in the Cincinnati area, and I'm excited to be here for today's discussion. Today, we will be consulting with Dr. Michelle Parker and Dr. Laura Piper on seasonal illnesses, specifically croup, influenza, and bronchiolitis. Our conversation will focus largely today on the management of these conditions and when a patient may need to be referred from a primary care physician's office to the emergency room or even admitted directly um, to the hospital or to Cincinnati Children's. But let's go ahead and get started by learning a little bit about our guests for today. Um, and whoever wants to go first, if you could just share a few sentences about your background, um, how long you've been practicing, and maybe how long you've been at Cincinnati Children's, even any special interests, if you want to throw that in. Yeah, thanks. My name is Laura Piper, and I'm a pediatric hospitalist. I've been a faculty member in the Division of Hospital Medicine for five years now, um, but previously worked uh, in hospital medicine as well in Houston before moving to Cincinnati. And I am fully clinical. I do time both at our base campus and our Liberty campus and also on our surgical co-management service. And my main academic focus is medical education. That's great. Thank you. And you forgot to tell us there's a there's a new, maybe little special interest at home, right? <laughs> there is. I am just coming back from maternity leave, and I have a three-month-old baby boy to add to my crew of two girls. So. Well, congratulations, and Thanks. that's very busy, so we really appreciate your time and being with us today. So, Dr. Parker? Um, well, thank you so much for having us. Um, we are excited to to join in the effort and share a little bit about the inpatient um, experiences that we have and talk about these conditions with you. Um, my name is Michelle Parker, and I also work in the Division of Hospital Medicine. I've been a faculty member here at Cincinnati Children's for 13 years. Um, and in addition to my clinical work, one of my other roles is as medical director for community integration. So my job there is to focus on the aspects of care that bridge our inpatient teams and outpatient primary care provider colleagues, things like communication, alignment of practice, and research endeavors so that we can collaborate cohesively with our patients' medical homes. That's great, thank you. And it was nice to, as you mentioned right before we started, to meet you in person because um, your work has been wonderful and I've enjoyed working with you, but it's always been virtual. So it is very nice to have you sitting across the table and having this conversation. So welcome to you both and thank you again for joining us. So I'd like to start with just a brief overview of um, some of these respiratory illnesses that we see as we head into the fall and winter months um, and probably I feel like the bulk, just in thinking about this of our discussion, may be focused a little more on influenza. Um, I did just a quick, you know, I have obviously some background and anecdotal knowledge of just what I see in the office, but, you know, it is pretty, I think, staggering when you think about just influenza deaths in children on an annual basis. Um, I had kind of looked up oh, over the last 10 seasons, what's the range of how many deaths per year you see? And it really ranges anywhere from about 37 up to 199. Um, and I know you guys have some more in-depth info to give us on that, but I, I think that's pretty telling. And then also, as all of our friends listening know, um, the majority of these cases for deaths are going to be in unvaccinated children, um, which is super important. But do, do either one of you have any... Um, data to share anything you know about like incidents and it can be flu bronchiolitis croup um, any of those 
I can start talking a little bit about croup and bronchiolitis and let um, Dr. Parker share about influenza. Perfect. Um, But croup, you know, typically affects kids ages six months to three years, Um, can affect up to age six, but rarely seen above age six. But interestingly, my six and a half year old just had croup a couple weeks ago, (laughs) so it's not off the table. But it accounts for approximately 350,000 to 450,000. 400,000 ED visits per year. Um, I couldn't find data on exact hospitalizations because a lot of croup doesn't necessarily need to be hospitalized. Um, But that's a pretty significant number, and that's in the United States. Um, Bronchiolitis, um, on the other hand, there's about 100,000 children are hospitalized with bronchiolitis in the U.S. each year, um, which is pretty substantial if you think about that. And that's just hospitalization, not the people that you guys are seeing out in the clinics or who are only going through the emergency room. It's funny you mentioned... um, (laughs) It was your my daughter, your daughter yeah, having yeah. croup. Um, I do feel like once parents know that cough, <laughs> you know, they might be seven, eight, nine years old, and you know, you have to have the talk. Okay, well, the good thing is their airway is larger, and the you know, true risk of any respiratory compromise is much less now. But gosh, once you hear that croup cough, you don't forget it, and um, you're right. We definitely have those few outliers that come in, and, and generally they do better, which is wonderful. But yeah, yeah, that's a that's a great point. And Dr. Parker, did you have um, some data to maybe add or some um, info just on overview of influenza and its impact um, on the medical system? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So as you discovered when you tried to dive into it, um, the incidence really depends on the annual severity, which is going to vary season to season. Um, So, and it's also probably something that is very underdiagnosed. So any of the data that's available from the CDC um, is going to be based on patients who are testing positive for flu, but probably underrepresenting the true influenza cases. Um, Clinical presentation for flu is going to be very difficult to distinguish from any other viral or even bacterial respiratory infections. Um, But there are a lot of different diagnostic testing modalities that are available um, in the outpatient setting that um, also are not necessarily going to be reported um, to to public health authorities. But the estimate of the annual disease burden really varies um, and is probably somewhere in the range of 45 pediatric hospitalizations per 100,000 children. So that math figures out to over 30,000 hospitalizations. And the highest rates of those um, hospitalizations are gonna occur in children who are less than five. And um, in looking at the death numbers, um, unfortunately, um, we do see deaths from pediatric influenza every year. Um, the past four non-pandemic flu seasons um, averaged out to about 176 pediatric flu deaths. Obviously, we saw a very marked decrease um, in influenza cases across the country in those COVID years. Sure. And then the other data, and you, you may delve into this more, um, but that I found was 80 to 90 percent somewhere in there are unvaccinated um, children of those influenza deaths, which is super telling, I think. You know, it's interesting, as I was listening to you talk about, it definitely does depend on the seasonality. Um, It also just kind of came to my mind, um, I'm sure some of it may also depend on how well-matched the influenza vaccine is, right, Mm -hmm. for the strains in terms of, you know, how many cases there are and the incidents in general. And so that all of those things go into play. 
Absolutely, so, yes. Yeah. And I, you know, we would be remiss to talk about influenza <laughs> without talking about flu vaccine. Um, and there is really excellent literature that shows us um, the importance of flu vaccine. Absolutely. So um, moving on just to more of thinking for the primary care physicians that might be listening, um, I think we are all very well versed in treating um, our pediatric patients that come in and may have influenza, bronchiolitis, or croup. Um, you know, specifically, obviously, we're going to take a good history and physical and be focused on their respiratory status, obviously, hydration status, work of breathing, you know, vitals, things like oxygenation and pulse ox. Um, do either one of you have any other kind of red flags that you would warn us to look for in the office, things that would just be a, oh, goodness, we need to really be on high alert for this patient, or this is an automatic trip to the emergency room? Um, any other things kind of in management? Yeah, so I think, you know, talking about bronchiolitis, there are a lot of red flags. Um, so any apnea, um, either observed or reported by the family, I think is important to note. Um, any severe respiratory distress, kind of what you discussed, your respiratory exam. So are they grunting? Do they have nasal flaring, significant retractions, or a respiratory rate greater than 60? If they're requiring greater than two liters of oxygen in your office to maintain their SATs greater than 90%, that would be another red flag. Um, and then ill appearance, cyanosis, central cyanosis. And if they have uh, moderate to severe dehydration, like you mentioned, um, I think those are all red flags that we would watch for. Um, there are some things that predispose them to more severe bronchiolitis. So any baby less than 12 weeks, if they have chronic lung disease, um, if they have a hemodynamically significant congenital heart disease, um, if they were premature, um, and any immunodeficiency or neuromuscular disorders, those kids are gonna have a higher risk of having more severe bronchiolitis um, and maybe more uh, likely to have a visit with us than sure. <laughs> the sure. normal kids. Absolutely, no, those were definitely great things to think about. Does that um, translate kind of into Croup as well? Is that, are those, some of those are similar. Some are but... similar. So the prematurity and the number I found for croup was less than 28 weeks. Um, then any known airway issues or narrowing, specifically congenital subglottic stenosis or a post-intubation subglottic stenosis. So your preemies may have that post-intubation subglottic stenosis. And then the other two big things were prior history of croup and a family history of croup. Oh, um, interesting. I, I, I didn't know that one. Small yeah, airway, I guess it's just, you know, yeah. the genetical airway. Um, so I thought yeah. that was interesting in my reading because very interesting. I don't yes. ask my patients <laughs> that when they come into the hospital. Does someone in the family have a history yeah. of croup? Um, your red flags for croup are going to be slightly different, so that strider at rest or biphasic strider. So if they have strider when they're crying, it's not as much of a big deal versus if it's at rest. Um, the increased work of breathing, the hypoxia, and the ill appearance for croup are going to be the more red flags to watch for. Absolutely. You know, I was thinking as you were talking there, um, you know, we see just primary pediatricians in the office, a lot of just laryngomalacia that we just watch and we know what it is and you know I've never really considered whether that potentially would predispose 
exposed to increased incidence of croup or at least reported symptoms. So I not thought it would. I was going to put it on my list. <laughs> and then I tried to find literature to back up yeah. what I was making my list. And I didn't find that okay. in any of the literature. I will say, you know, we have those kids who have laryngomalacia who get admitted with croup, but it doesn't seem like it's a known risk factor. And some of them, what I've found anecdotally in the hospital is they just have more pronounced work of breathing at baseline. So that is a thing that's you have to elicit from the parents, like, what's their normal right, work right. of breathing sure. <laughs> versus, like, their sick work of breathing. Yeah. And that's kind of what I was trying to think through as you were talking is I thought, you know, I don't know that it would necessarily predispose them, but it's probably really hard to to tell, like you said, because they just would sound twice as bad as, you know, a child with an otherwise completely normal airway. So, yeah. Great. Thank you. And then Dr. Parker, in terms of flu-specific things as pediatricians in the office when we're seeing these patients that we can really um, look out for on our physical exam or specific, you know, historical or predisposition info that you can share with us? Yeah, so um, the symptoms of flu are obviously going to vary, but most commonly are going to be constitutional symptoms, so fever, myalgia, headaches, and fatigue, as well as respiratory symptoms of cough, sore throat, and runny nose. Um, GI symptoms, so vomiting and diarrhea, tend to be more common in the pediatric population than in adults, um, which may be helpful to elicit, especially if there are other household contacts that are sick. Um, And thankfully, most with flu are going to recover fully in under two weeks, but there really can be severe disease presentations that we should be um, thinking through in our differential when we're assessing these patients. Um, And those complications can include myocarditis, encephalitis, myositis, respiratory failure, um, as well as sepsis or other secondary bacterial infections. Um, So in thinking through some of the red flags that predispose patients to those high-risk influenza sequelae, um, those are more common in younger children, so children who are less than two years of age are at higher risk. Um, Females who are pregnant or two weeks postpartum, so this might apply to um, adolescent patients. Um, Patients who are immune suppressed, whether that is because of a medical condition or medications that they're taking. Um, And then also racial and ethnic minorities. Um, The the data shows that um, they are more at risk for severe influenza and we can we can surmise as to whether that has to do with um, our health systems and care delivery or something else. Um, And then lastly, patients that are receiving um, any long-term aspirin medications. So patients who have a recent diagnosis of Kawasaki disease, we actually always recommend to get a flu vaccine um, because that aspirin therapy is a part of their treatment regimen and would predispose them to complications. Really, it's um, patients that have any kind of chronic disease in in nearly any organ system are going to be at higher risk of influenza. That was a great tidbit on the Kawasaki's. It's not something I would have ever thought about, so I appreciate it. So, absolutely. Um, So, just if maybe we can kind of um, transition into a little bit more of management now, and I don't know, maybe it makes more sense, Dr. Parker, for you, um, since we just kind of uh, ended with some of the things to watch for in the office with flu to kind of delve into management, which obviously we know with most viruses, right, lots of supportive care, but um, thankfully we do have some other options for treatment. And, you know, maybe just discussing first with Tamiflu, what the recommendations um, are for 
treatment and maybe even specifically what you use? Because I know people will vary a little bit in their medical practice, of course, but um, maybe while you're in the hospital and Dr. Piper, feel free to jump in as well um, and just share kind of when it seems indicated and when you have found just by experience it's helpful. Absolutely. Um, so before we talk a, too much about the management with Tamiflu, it might be helpful to go through um, the diagnostic testing okay. of influenza sure. and just thinking through which patients warrant a, a rapid flu test in, in the outpatient realm or not, because um, I think that does influence potentially what we do um, from a medication standpoint. Um, it's definitely a conversation we have quite often in the <laughs> office, so it's very pertinent, I believe. Yes, because parents um, often, rightly so, will want a diagnosis and an explanation for the symptoms. Sure. Um, you can consider making a presumptive diagnosis if you're in the height of flu season and the constellation of symptoms fit. Um, diagnostic testing is really recommended um, in a more narrow application. So if it's going to really change your management. So is it going to prevent you from doing other diagnostic evaluation because of the symptoms that are present? Is it going to decrease unnecessary antibiotic use if you diagnose influenza and so you aren't treating some kind of a bacterial infection that isn't actually there? Um, it's also indicated if there needs to be some kind of thought about chemoprophylaxis if there's a vulnerable uh, close contact living in the household, for example. Um, so those are some of the some of the reasons why you might want to test for influenza. Um, and then when you're thinking about treatment, there are, there are really only two possible oral antivirals. The one that is recommended, the antiviral of choice is oseltamivir, which is a neuraminidase inhibitor. Um, it's approved to age down to age two weeks of age um, and up, and it functions by preventing the release of virons from the host cell. Um, they're really only recommended to outpatients who are at high risk for complications. So again, that's those patients less than two, patients who have chronic comorbid conditions, um, or patients who have worsening and progression of their symptoms. And for that subset of patients where typically we would say you really need to catch them early in the first 48 hours of symptoms, patients who are continuing to worsen um, are recommended to receive antiviral therapy regardless of where they are um, in, their, in their influenza course. Good to know. And then how about um, thinking of children that are hospitalized? Is, is it, do you kind of use that as an automatic criteria to say, oh, you are in the hospital, you must have more serious illness, regardless of those other risk factors that we talked about, so we should go ahead and start Tamiflu? Or um, do you find that that's a case-by-case -case basis? That is a great question. Um, and I think one of the great things about Cincinnati Children's is that we do a lot of shared decision making. And this is an area where I think in our hospital medicine group, we probably adopt that approach. Um, the official recommendation is that patients who are hospitalized because of influenza should receive antiviral therapy. Um, knowing the strength of the evidence that it really um, has modest evidence to show a reduction in symptom duration by one day, and then counterbalancing that with some of the side effects of the medication. You know, my approach is to present all the data to the families and say, 
because your child has been hospitalized with influenza, we do recommend strong consideration of giving oseltamivir or Tamiflu. Um, this is what you might expect as far as the efficacy of it and potential side effects. Um, and it really is a mixed bag in terms of what parents prefer, but I think just being very transparent and informing them and supporting them in their decision and talking through what the possible outcomes are um, is really helpful. That's great. I think that's very similar to what a lot of my colleagues and myself do in the outpatient setting too is, you know, let's talk about the data. Let's talk about the side effects. Let's talk about the risks and benefits and, you know, what is the potential positives, you know, obviously less severe courses, but, you know, you mentioned that data shows lessening of symptoms by around 24 hours on average. Um, so it's just, it, it's very interesting. I feel like it's a very mixed bag and I'm sure you experience the same thing on the inpatient side of things. So, um, do you feel comfortable talking a little bit about, uh, Zofluza, which I think was kind of, um, maybe on your mind before we or I'm sorry, when we started talking about Tamiflu. Um, and then very curious, it is not one that I will say I think I have ever prescribed in my career. So if you have any just little pearls of maybe there's a certain patient population or a certain reason why that might be better over Tamiflu, because I feel like as um, PCPs, we're very Tamiflu and it's kind of, I don't want to say all we know, but we're definitely more comfortable with it. And I think that makes sense when you dive a little bit deeper into the patient population that it is licensed for. Mm -hmm. um, so that's exactly why you haven't used it very much. So um, the generic name is Biloxivir. Um, it is, as opposed to oseltamivir, it's a single dose medication um, and it inhibits mRNA synthesis. Um, it is licensed for uncomplicated influenza in children who are between five years of age and 12 years old, as long as they're not at high risk for severe complications, which really limits your treatment <laughs> population because most of the time we're saying that you should really only treat those who are really young. We're preaching or, basically, do yes, not use. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, it is also licensed for patients 12 and older, whether or not they have any risk factors. So for your older patients, you can consider it. I will say that we don't really use Biloxivir in the hospital setting. I don't know if any of any of my other colleagues have, or Dr. Piper, if you have any experience with it. Um, typically, if I'm going to offer an antiviral, it's really only going to be oseltamivir. Um, but what? So I can't I can't comment in my real world experience, but. Anecdotally, it does seem like it has a little bit of a cleaner side effect profile with less nausea and vomiting than oseltamivir might have. Um, so really, if you have a patient that um, should get an antiviral therapy, um, it, it seems like a very reasonable consideration. Nice to just have a one time as opposed to a five day as Absolutely. well. Absolutely. Um, but then of course, my mind always goes to with all the phone calls we get after we prescribe things, wonder what the cost is. So, so I think just, you know, considering all those things, and obviously, as you said, even with Tam um, Tamiflu, that definitely shared decision-making with the family. So wonderful. Um, Dr. Piper, would you like to talk just a little bit about specific treatment um, and even things we can do in the office for croup um, as well as bronchiolitis? So it would be 
great if you want to jump yeah. in. Yeah. So croup, I think, you know, obviously the supportive care, uh, educating the parents on utilizing cool air or the hot steam from the shower if their child's worsening overnight. Um, and then Decadron is great. Um, so it's 0.6 megs per kg, and you can give a max of 10. And that's actually what I sped to the pediatrician to get for my daughter the other day because she had some strider at rest but we made it through the night um so getting those steroids then um racemic epinephrine can really help when they have that strider at rest i'm not sure if that's something offices do i actually do have it oh that's awesome it is so interestingly when i trained years ago it was and i think this has changed so i'm gonna see if if you guys maybe can help me with the updated er kind of requirements and recommendations. Um, when I trained, it was a four-hour observation window after, but I think, is that down to two? I think now? sometimes they'll do two if there's no, like everything is perfect. Okay. Um, but if they give a second dose in the ER here at Children's, I've been other places where it was if you got a third dose, if they get a second dose here, then they admit them, um, which we usually just watch them for eight hours and then send them home. And some sure. families are ready to go at 10 <laughs> o'clock at night and others want to stay the whole yeah. night. And I think that's the difficulty, too, in the outpatient setting, right? Because do you do you have the capacity and the ability to sit someone in the office just sitting there for two right. hours? And sometimes you do, sometimes you don't. Um, but, yeah, I, I definitely it's available, right, whether, you know, each office, I'm sure, on a case by case basis, whether they decide it makes sense for them to have it on hand. Um, I will also share I've never used it in my office for that reason that I just said, but um, I think it's nice to have it available. And I definitely have colleagues who who have used it. So, um, And then for bronchiolitis, again, like you said, a lot of supportive care, mm-hmm. um, you know, being able to in the office check oxygen levels, I think that's very reassuring. Obviously, just their work of breathing in general, their age, all of those things, those predisposing factors. Um, and, you know, we're definitely not going to dive too far into this because we have lots of information on a previous podcast about this. But, you know, very excited for the future, maybe not necessarily this season for um, Bay Fortis mm-hmm. or Nirsevimab, um, which may really change the path of what RSV and and kind of bronchiolitis season looks for all of us. So I don't know that there's going to be much change this year, but I'm excited for the potential of the years to come. (laughs) Yeah, I think we'll just have to wait, wait and see what happens. But, you know, in terms of bronchiolitis, I think the one thing to remember outside of supportive care is, you know, we all really want to do something to help these patients. But Evidence really has shown that things like bronchodilators and corticosteroids really are not beneficial. So we overall recommend against the trial of those um, and really the supportive care and suctioning, suctioning, suctioning um, these little babies. And I just always encourage parents to remember to suction before they try and feed the baby, like every time before, because that's when they're going to be working the hardest. Um, this is a very funny, non-evidence-based um, question for you guys, but um, any thoughts of what you feel is the best at-home suction for parents to use? <laughs> I knew you were going to ask that. I mean, I love the nose freedom. My okay. husband refuses to use it and says I have to use it. Anecdotally, I've heard patients 
will hook up the nose Frida to the breast pump and oh, that I makes that. an electric. It didn't work. Didn't work. Yeah. Okay, no. I have no. mommy it. powers the best. <laughs> That's so funny. some patients I've had yeah. swear by the electronic suction devices they can get on Amazon, and then I've had others be like, no, they don't work. Just use the nose, Frida. I had someone show me one that blew my mind, and this has been like two years ago, that they attached it. It was made to be attached to the vacuum cleaner. <laughs> and I thought, oh. <laughs> I haven't heard that one. I hope that's on like that low sounds power. Like it could be so. a little painful. But I mean, and actually the kiddo I think was just a tad bit older. It wasn't like a tiny little one. And and I tell you, they just swore by it. And I said, hey, whatever works, right? Yeah. So, um, but it was quite funny. But yes, I, I agree. I would say from what I hear from my patients, yes. nose Frida typically I, is the best. But just curious if you guys have the... Same experience. Yep, so, I'm team nose Frida as well. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. So, um, and this question can be for either one of you. What would you say are some key factors? You know, we're looking at this child in the office, whether it be flu, bronchiolitis, um, croup, any of those respiratory viruses, and we say, okay, this child needs more care than what the parent can provide at home or than what I can do in my office. Um, what would be some of your pearls to give us as physicians is what child just needs to go to directly to the emergency room versus kids that may be appropriate for a potential direct admission? I think thinking about how much they need stabilization versus not, because when they come as a direct admit, they're not going to have a bunch of nurses there able to give them a bolus if they need that or if they're having escalating respiratory needs. So if you can kind of keep that overarching thing in mind, do they need additional active management, the ER might be a better place versus, you know, they're stable on a liter of oxygen, they're breathing comfortably, but you can't get them off that liter of oxygen, that patient may be more appropriate. We do have some specific guidelines for like bronchiolitis. Um, you know, croup, honestly, I can't think of a patient I've ever accepted as a direct admission for croup, not to say that it's outside the realm, but given typically they're needing racemic epinephrine, they're having difficulty breathing is why you're not sending them home, they're more likely to need the emergency room. Potentially a patient who has croup who's just dehydrated might be appropriate for direct admission, but croup I think most of the time the emergency room would be the best place. And a lot of times they can get them out of the emergency room and send them home. Sure. Um, bronchiolitis, I think we as a group have decided that we won't take patients less than two months of age just because they're at risk of decompensation. They're definitely not to be trusted. You know, <laughs> um, and if they're, they have to be greater than 34 weeks uh, gestational age as well. Um, they cannot have any apnea or um, moderate or severe dehydration and no severe respiratory distress and their respiratory rate needs to be um, less than 60 and they need to be stable on less than or equal to two liters. So if they're on three liters of oxygen, that's someone we'd like you to send to the ED just because we don't have the same resources on immediate arrival at the floor if they need escalation. Sure. But the bronchiolytic who's patient with bronchiolitis who's stable on a liter of oxygen in your office, but you can't get them off, like I said, that's yeah. That's the great candidate who's well hydrated sure. for us to take and you can bypass the ER. That's, that's um, great info, I think, for you know, us as 
community pediatricians in the Cincinnati area to get that very specific criteria of what, okay, this is not, you know. So we don't have to do that phone call and get you guys and pull everybody away and then say, oh, oops, that doesn't meet the criteria. But I also think for other listeners who might not even be for the Cincinnati area to just say, hey, these are going to be the main factors that you might want to consider. And that patient's going to be more appropriate to go through the emergency room. So thank you. Appreciate it. Yeah, um, we have we have a really robust and excellent direct admission process that has been refined over the years. One of the requirements is that the patient has to have been seen by a healthcare provider within 24 hours. And that's for almost all patients. There are just a couple of exceptions, but certainly for any of these respiratory patients. And I think the things that Dr. Piper is highlighting are that um, because some of these respiratory conditions, you know, kids can wax and wane with the severity of their illnesses, probably croup a little bit more than bronchiolitis, mm-hmm. especially if they've received um, racemic epinephrine in the office or something like that, or are getting agitated and worked up, which we know is going to exacerbate things. Um, that's something to think about. And when when we receive that initial call, you know, we we might accept the patient for a direct admission and then the PCP is communicating that back to the parents who are then thinking, okay, we're gonna be in the hospital. How long am I gonna be in the hospital? What else do I need to do to get the other kids situated? I need a pack. And so there may be some other delays that are just baked into the process um, that would mean that the child could potentially show up on the floor um, in a little bit worse shape than when they were last seen. And so we're we're trying to avoid you know, a patient showing up um, and and really decompensating and just want to make the process safe for everybody. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you. I know you've done endless work on the direct admission <laughs> process. You you may even talk about that in your sleep, I would think so. But no, I'm teasing you. But um, definitely appreciate having those guidelines for um, pediatricians because it does make it easier on us to know what's appropriate and, you know, what you guys expect as we work together to care um, for these sick patients. So, and, and I also think one thing that's often on our minds as general pediatricians is that we really do, if at all possible, like to keep these kids out of the emergency room, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's a big focus often when we know the ER is super full, the wait time is very long, but the hospital's also very full and, you know, what, what can we do? So, you know, thank you both for sharing the specifics of management in the office and um, pearls to give these parents at home to manage. So I'd like to wrap um, things up in our discussion today with um, a really loaded question. (laughs) Um, Just if either one of you have any predictions, it has been, as we all know, a crazy three-ish years. um, And COVID screwed it all up, right? No, I'm just but trying to figure out seasonality in the pediatric population anymore um, has been a bit of a challenge. So just very curious if you had any predictions for what you feel, you know, and obviously this is not backed up by any long-term evidence, but what you feel like the season may be like this year. I think like you mentioned, it's really hard to predict because since COVID, we've lost seasonality in pediatric respiratory illnesses. We've had these peaks in the summer and then last winter was pretty rough for all of us. Um, so it's hard to say if if I were to predict, I'm thinking this year might be 
a little more normal and hopefully a little more mild than last year since we got hit so hard. But Fingers who crossed. knows? <laughs> um, For all you of know, our, all of our sanity. <laughs> I think with Bay Fortis, there's been some people who are like, "Oh, this is going to change this year." I don't think it's going to change this year. Like you said, you know, I, I think people are not going to be able to access it. Um, and then also, there's plenty of other viruses that cause bronchiolitis. Um, so. I'm cautiously optimistic that it might be a little better. I don't. I think we'll probably see more of a normal season, but I don't know, Dr. Parker, if you have any thoughts on that. I agree. I think. I think viral respiratory season is probably coming. Um, flu is definitely going to happen. So we we regardless of how severe or when the season occurs, we should definitely make sure to talk about flu vaccine again. It is the most effective way to prevent morbidity and mortality from influenza. Um, the flu vaccine redu reduces a child's risk of dying from the flu by 65% in healthy children um, and over 50% in those who have um, high-risk conditions. It reduces a child's risk of severe life-threatening flu by 75%, um, reduces flu-related hospitalizations by over 40%, and cuts ED-related flu visits in half. Um, so even though um, sometimes we know that the flu vaccine may not be well-matched to the circulating flu, there's also data that shows that a history of regular flu vaccination still will decrease the severity of flu. So I always make a point of sharing with families that while we hope the flu vaccine can keep the, our, our patients from catching the flu, the real reason is to keep their children from getting critically ill from the flu. So we all get our flu vaccines every year yes. and we strongly encourage um, everybody else to do the same. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing. I, I think we all know the benefit of flu vaccines as physicians, but to really hear those numbers makes it pretty impactful because that's, those probably aren't numbers that we think about, you know, each year, like, wow, it's, you know, pretty telling how, how much of a benefit there really is. So... Uh, well, thank you both for all your time today and sharing your knowledge and experience with us. It's been a lot of um, fun to talk with you, and we appreciate you joining us. We will have CME available um, on the podcast page, as well as our community practice support tools will be attached as well. Um, and I believe you both might have been involved in the bronchiolitis support tool No. Just, just Dr. Parker. Mm -hmm. Okay, just Dr. Parker. And Dr. But. Meyer, Dr. Katie Meyer. <laughs> so, um, well, thank you so much, and um, we appreciate you being here with us today.